Hello, everyone, and welcome to DTR Insights, the podcast where we dive deep into the process of creating and building a strong and recognizable brand. My name is Sandra, and I'm so excited for you guys to hear today's podcast. In this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the world of funding and venture capital and figure out what investors are really looking for. So whether you're a startup founder or an established business looking to get funding and grow, this episode will provide you with valuable insights. This episode will be recorded live from Soho Works and will be moderated by my lovely co-host, Rahel Baker. So let's dive in and meet our guest. Uh, welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us this evening. Um, welcome to Women of Venture, brought to you by DTR um, Insights, and it's hosted by Experience DTR. If you're not familiar with what DTR is, we're a creative marketing agency based in LA, and um, we really want to bring our community together to learn about different trends throughout different topics. And so we moderate a different theme each quarter. And so this quarter, we thought it would be phenomenal to bring women together to celebrate Women's History Month and learn a little bit about venture capitalists. Um, so the purpose of this podcast, like I said, is to educate and empower our community with information that they need to achieve their dreams. Um, today, I'm, I'm joined with this amazing group of women. And I'd love to start it off with having you all introduce yourself a little bit. So I'll start with my right, Adela. Perfect. I hope you can all hear me okay. Um, great to be here, and thanks so much for hosting an awesome Women's History Month event. I hope we can continue this through through the rest of the year. Um, so uh, as uh, Sandra and Rahel mentioned, I'm Adela Jamal. I'm a GP and also the co-founder, one of the co-founders at Milemar Capital. We are a VC fund um, focusing on early, uh, early stage tech-enabled, um, AI-enabled um, companies out of Boston. So we really focus on MIT, Harvard, and that whole exciting ecosystem. Um, a little bit more about my background, I'll answer this question a little differently. Um, so there's something called Ikigai. And if you can imagine a Venn diagram, four circles, um, what you love, what you're good at, what you can get you know, paid for, and what you enjoy at that center is your ikigai. And I feel like my whole career, I've been sort of focusing on that and trying to find that. And right now I'm doing it, helping female founders, helping diverse teams, um, doing something that the world needs and really at the forefront of it and also taking a, a really, really big risk. Um, and then prior to Mile Mark, actually, I started my career working for a VC, a startup in the Bay Area, and then moved on to exec roles. Um, like leading at Sony Pictures and then also doing a ton of work for DEI, women's advancement platforms. And now it's sort of like this awesome um, role that I'm in, which is really helping to push the needle forward in innovation, tech, and DEI. I'll pass it on from you. Hi, I'm Nia Patel. I'm an investor at Bold Capital. So we are primarily a healthcare life sciences fund. We invest at the early stage. So that means when a founder is really just coming up with the idea and really looking to scale their products at the seed and series A level. And I think the really unique thing about Bold is we like to invest in technology that really uplifts humanity. So there really has to be a value proposition that's improving the way that we eat, sleep, live, something that really has a profound impact on the world today. Prior to Bold, I was at an A16 backed FinTech startup. I was an early employee there. And I think I was employee 11 and the team grew to over 400. I scaled our volume from pretty much zero to 4.2 billion. So really got to see the good, the bad and the ugly of the startup life. And that was really when I fell in love with the tech ecosystem. Um, the company had this profound mission that was helping people and democratizing access to investments. And 
that really stuck with me. So I'm excited to be here. And I have to say, this room is amazing. I am <laughs> loving the diversity in this room. This is such an awesome turnout. So excited for this discussion. Hey, everyone. I'm Jenny Liu, a partner at Mac VC. Um, not a misspelling of my name. It's spelled with the Z-H, but pronounced like Jenny with a J. Um, I was actually born in China, so legally that's how you spell my name in Chinese. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area and moved to LA just about a year ago, but I've been with Mac um, for, gosh, almost two years now, so since Fund 1, and we're now investing on Fund 2, but I've been in venture for the past six years or so, investing mostly early stage um, at a couple of different funds, and before my career in venture, started out as a consultant at Bain. I've also worked at Sephora before, which I know most of the ladies here yeah. <laughs> knows what that is. Um, it's funny. Sometimes I tell people I worked at Sephora and I have men on the other end. They're like, what is that? I'm like, uh, <laughs> ask your mom or sister. <laughs> they may know. Um, but yeah, a little bit more about Mac. We are a seed stage fund uh, based here mostly in Los Angeles. Team of seven people. Most of us are here in LA. We have someone in Menlo Park as well and someone in New York. We're generalists, so we invest in a lot of different sectors and <clears throat> industries, ranging from um, you know rockets that go into space to your typical B two B SaaS uh, fintech startup that you know you may use in the back end and never really talk about. Um, our, we're investing at our second fund, which is a little over two hundred million dollars. Fund one came together in twenty nineteen. Um, I joined um, a little after we fundraised that, and we'll probably kick off a fundraise for our third fund later this year. Amazing. Thank you. I feel so honored to be around this like well-esteemed colleague of women. So I'm really excited to start the conversation. Um, and we were thinking maybe we could start by debunking some of the misconceptions about the VC world. And I'd like to open this question to anyone on the panel. Um, what are some common misconceptions founders have about fundraising and how can they better understand the process and expectations of venture capitalists? So I'm not sure if anyone wants to jump in, but it's open. I can jump in. I think um, a lot of founders think that it's going to be this very difficult, arduous process, and we're always immediately going to think the worst. And I think it's actually the opposite. I think to be a successful VC, you have to be long-term optimistic, and you always have to be looking at the upside. So for me, when I look at deals, I'm like, what if this works? What does that mean? I'm not thinking about what if it doesn't work. And I think at the VC side, we have just a tremendous amount of respect for founders who are building. Oftentimes, you're putting everything on the line to pursue this passion and you're foregoing money that could be going to rent or you're not going out. And it's it's really this incredible commitment to pursue this passion that it's, it's really inspiring. And um, I think that's the general kind of mindset of VC. So I don't want founders to be scared to approach VC or have this negative conception because we really are impressed by most founders and we want to kind of believe in the upside. So it's more of this optimistic thing. Yeah, happy to add on. I, I think uh, Nia's spot on. If anybody here has seen um, the old TV show, Silicon Valley, you know, I think that's just hilarious. And um, I don't know if it helped the industry or hurt the industry, but you know, something that I'm really happy to sort of you know, point out is that it is evolving, it's changing. And even just over the last 15 years, um, I've seen it, you know, working up in the Bay Area to what it is now. Um, I think you really have to think about, well, what is it that you're building and why? And then finding an investor to connect with on that. And so for us at Malmar um, Capital, that's something that we're really like, focused on is we have a really diverse team intentionally that way built. Um, the leadership team is extremely diverse. And then 
we meet with founders and they come up, you know, and they share like truly what they're building and why. And based on that relationship, that connection, you know, you can really strike a meaningful relationship. If it's not, you know, something that you get into immediately, it's also just paving sort of the road forward for maybe a future engagement. And that's something I like to share with founders, like figure out, you know, what your approach is and why you're making that connection. Amazing. Um, Zenny, I'd like to ask you this question if possible. Um, we were wondering what are some key factors that venture capitalists look for when deciding whether to invest in a startup and what are some ways that they can optimize their pitch to attract these founders? Yeah. So <clears throat> with venture capital, there's different stages of investing. So I focus on the very early stages, pre-seed and seed, which is oftentimes, sometimes it's pre-product, pre-revenue, you know, two people come in with a pitch deck and an idea. Um, sometimes there's, you know, some sort of revenue or their product is live and we can play around with. So um, it's kind of at the very early stages where it's not, we're not sure yet what we call it. The company has found product market fit. Um, and that's kind of like the pre-seed seed stage. And then as you go on beyond series A all the way to pre-IPO, the pitch will evolve. Um, the diligence process will change. And in general, you know, what it takes to, I guess, get investment will look a little different. The criteria will look a little different. So I'll kind of tailor that answer to um, kind of at the seed stage, pre-seed stage, um, you know, when I'm meeting with founders, ways that, or things I look for, ways that founders stand out. So the very early stages when it's usually just, you know, founders, a big idea, maybe a product, maybe not. Um, what we're really trying to understand is like, what is the vision here that we're building towards? What is the market? Who are the people in front of me? So I think, um, it's so important, as Nia said, to have a bit of optimism of like, what if this works? What does that mean for the world? What does that mean um, for this company? And why is this founder the right person to do it? Building a company is tremendously hard. Um, I've seen grown men cry <laughs> in front of me because it's just, it's very, very challenging and difficult. So really also getting to the why, like not only why me, but why do you want to do this? So spending a lot of time understanding the founding story, how the founders know each other, what do they do before wanting to start this company and how is that applicable to what they're doing now? And then the next step is kind of getting to a good understanding of what is this market? Who are the different players out there? What are the dynamics? What makes this company different? Why will they win? What's kind of like the secret sauce or even long-term, what is um, defensibility? What's stopping anyone else from coming in? I think there are other you know, there's a typical diligence checklist of things, you know, we want to understand and look through. But at the end of the day, the very early stages, we're making a bet on, you know, an executive team and that they'll figure it out. There's a lot of pivots that happen in companies. Um, I think about, uh, gosh, what's a really good example of a pivot I've seen before? Um, a company that starts out you know, selling webcams. This is actually a real portfolio company of mine in the past. They started off selling webcams and they pivoted into um, recruiting software <laughs> because back in the early 2000s, you know, before people were doing online recruiting, um, a first idea was like, if we gave people webcam, will, they, will this increase the amount of conversations that are taking place on university between recruiters and um students and eventually they pivoted to software based only this company's called higher view um you know if you're a university student you know of it because a lot of large companies like jp morgan use it to recruit on campus um, but that was a company that we invested in a long time ago amazing is there anything else anyone wants to add if not i was wondering maybe we can flip that question on its head um and maybe nia i was wondering if you can maybe talk a little bit about some of the common mistakes 
that people might make when pitching to investors and what are some ways that they can avoid that? Yeah, I think oftentimes during pitches, the founders want to present this very optimistic picture of why everything they're doing is going to work and why it's going to be the one thing that changes the world. And of course, it's great, but an investor is always going to think, okay, well, where are the risks and what do we need to think about proactively? And I've only seen this a handful of times, and I would love to see this as more of an institutionalized approach in pitch meetings, but I would love to see a slide that's like, these are the risks and these are the reasons it won't work. And here's how we're going to address that Mm -hmm. because that's ultimately what the diligence process is going to lead to. And if I have a founder who is self-aware enough and articulate enough to address that and then convince me that they're going to overcome all of these challenges, that to me is an A founder. Um, The other thing is this is at its core people business and it changes a little bit later stage, but at the early stage, we're really investing in people, as Jenny said, and I would love to see more of an emphasis on why this founder or this team are the right people to do this problem. Because all I'm thinking about is we're going to have another black swan event. Something's going to go wrong. You're going to need to change to hit revenue. How are you going to handle that? And what makes you uniquely qualified? Sorry to handle that. And I don't see that as much as I'd like to. So those are maybe the two things. I love that. Thank you. Yeah, I can just quickly comment to um, what Jenny and and Nia are saying. I also like to just like very simply, you know, break it down to the five W's, like who, what, where, when, why. And if you can, you know, get those answers and, you know, really pull that out of the founders because they, to Nia's point, might not be as transparent um, as they can because they're nervous, right? This is a big, big deal for them to be presenting, to have a pitch, to get in front of you. Um, I think that just helps both sides move forward faster. And then also maybe even just get to the fact that maybe it's not the right fit, maybe not the right time. But that's how I like to look at it. what is the, you know, the five W's and like get that into the deck or into the conversation early on. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to pivot. Um, studies show that less than 3% of venture capital backed founders are P- POC. How can we create more opportunities for diverse founders and investors to get funding and promote a more inclusive ecosystem overall? And I guess on the other side of that, how can we encourage more women and people of color to pursue careers in venture capital? And what can we do to support them and make sure that they're successful in these endeavors? And maybe Adela, I can start with you. Okay, great. So to the first part of that question, yes. I mean, if we just take a look at, you know, the VC industry, um, take a look at a snapshot, you know, 20 years to where we are now. Um, first and foremost, I think, you know, ventures is very young, right? And a lot of people sort of, you know, try the best to figure it out. But unfortunately, um, it's been led by, you know, just the more prominent, historically prominent groups and um, the wealthy. And now it's sort of changing. And so today we see that, you know, um, we've got a lot of interest, but maybe not as many people um, able to break through. Um, the funding, you know, went down from 3% to 2% for female founders. Um, and there's a lot of work being done on the back end. But I think it really just comes down to, you know, first of all, understanding like what the problem is, where we can jump in, and that's going to happen at all levels. And so very specifically, the way I see it, and, you know, what I've been trying to practice is, well, one, the education, you know, getting out there, doing events like this, getting out into the community, talking about, you know, what the rules look like, what the opportunities are. And then also really leaning in hard to advisory, to mentorship, you know, find um, opportunities where you can actually like debunk, you know, what it means to get into this industry and also like what it looks like. And the reality is, you know, 
I'm obviously like thrilled to be here and have like three other um, female, you know, um, VCs with me. But the more you can sort of push and get, um, you know, the individuals across the, com- the, the company and, and the table being diverse, the more they're going to actually pull up and ensure that they're, you know, aligning with diverse founders and sort of, you know, say, hey, look, I'm on the side of the table. I'm willing to give you that conversation, open up doors, which, you know, previously weren't even an option for them. That's going to make a huge difference. And then also understand that it's happening also at the institution level. And that's not going to happen overnight. That's not, you know, hiring someone to fill a role. It's going to take time, but it's, you know, groups like this, conversations like mm-hmm. this, which will actually make a difference. Great. Does anyone else have anything to add? I'll, I'll chime in a little bit more. I've been thinking about this for a long time um, because when I first started in venture, which was six years ago, which doesn't sound like it's a long time, but it's, it's very adventure <laughs> <laughs> years. I feel ancient. Yeah. So my first job in venture, I actually moved from San Francisco to Salt Lake City uh, for my first, the first fund that I worked at. Um, and it was kind of a reverse culture shock for me. I grew up in the Bay Area, spent most of my career there. Um, and when I moved to Salt Lake City for the first time, I was the poster child of diversity. And I did, I was never that really in San Francisco, but I was the first female investor hire of the fund. Um, I think first person of color they hire in general, there was like mm-hmm. no other women in VC, no other women of color either in VC. And it was extremely isolating. And um, in general, like, I, I was very confused as to why, like why that wasn't different. And um, even six years ago, you know, uh, looking back, like every year progressively, we have more and more women kind of get into venture. And we also have this issue now where a lot of them are more so at the junior level of analyst or associate. We're not seeing as many women at the GP level, partnership <laughs> level. And on the other side with the institutions who are writing the checks to venture capitalists, there's not as many women either. So um, I think overall, the entire ecosystem, things are moving and shifting. Education is a huge part of it. But also the people who are in positions to be writing checks, I think um, the onus is on us um, to do our part and to, to um, you know, narrow the gap in our portfolio. We have 70% of our founders are diverse, right? And, um, and that's not coincidental. Um, my fund is predominantly, we're Black-owned fund. And this is the first fund where I've worked at where majority of the fund is not someone or is not someone who's white and male. Mm-hmm. Every single fund I've worked at previous to this, I was always the first female hired and the first person mm-hmm. of color they've hired. And in my fund for the first time, like we only have one white guy. He's always very, <laughs> very, very self-conscious of it. He calls himself out all the time. And that's very different than what you see in most venture funds. Um, and we're not specific. We don't have a mandate that we have to invest in founders of color or you know mm-hmm. diverse founders. That's not something we ask ourselves. I think it's a reflection of just the way we think about opportunities, the way we our networks are and how we process um, the companies that come our way, it allows us to have a different level of um, conviction when we make investments that look different than, you know, people of different backgrounds, I'd say. And we just need to have more of that, I think. Definitely. Um, So you mentioned that um, the VC industry in itself is kind of in its infancy stage. And so I was wondering if anyone could talk a little bit about some trends and shifts that you're anticipating in the venture capital industry and anything we should be aware of um, for any potential founders and what, I guess, um, how should they adapt their fundraising strategy um, to, I guess, combat some of these headwinds? Yeah, I think we're seeing um, the entire industry really become more cautious and 
everyone really is going back to fundamentals. So we really went through this like era of exuberance where you could walk into any VC meeting and be like, I have this idea, great, like 10 million, 50 posts. Um, <laughs> that is no longer happening. And now it's kind of like corrected to the other extreme where you really have to go the extra mile to prove that you're worthy of this capital allocation. Um, and oftentimes that means changing parameters for what usually would be a seed deal, meaning maybe you now do have to have some revenue. Maybe now you do have to have some board advisors that kind of validate what you're trying to do. But I think for this room specifically, I think the unfortunate reality is that the society and kind of ethical obligations to treat everyone equally and support everyone equally have not been enough of an impetus of change for this industry. And that's more important now than ever when capital has become more scarce. And that's not to say there isn't capital, but it's just sitting on the sidelines and mm. the bar to invest has gotten even higher. So for the underrepresented groups and for the minorities, these forums are really, really important and having a focus mm -hmm. on DNI and really institutionalizing it into your process. And I think a lot of the times too, we hear like, oh, that's great. Just hire more diverse. But what I would really love to highlight for this room is that it's not just about who you hire. This really transcends through the entire employee journey. And it's about, is this hire getting the same mentorship as their white colleague? Are they being put in a key decision role? Are mm -hmm. they effectively allocating capital? Because the type of change that we want to see, to Jenny's point, really only comes to those who are allocating capital. And those who are allocating capital, unfortunately, are a very specific group of people and are informed by bias, unconscious bias. So. Great. Um, so I have two more questions. Um, and so one of the questions that I had, though, was, you know, it's really intimidating, I think, to even just get out there and network, which is a part of a reason why Sandra and myself, you know, we're hosting these types of mixers and networking events. So, you know, we can really kind of change the the way that people are interacting um, with one another. Um, I was wondering, how can founders establish and maintain a relationship with the potential investor? And what are some effective ways to follow up after a pitch? If you have any tips or tricks there, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, I think uh, pitching looks different a lot today than it did when I first started out in the industry. Back in the day, pitches were always face-to-face -face in an office. And, mm -hmm. you know, you have a full hour maybe to have a conversation. You may have like a presentation that you put up and, <laughs> you know, project. And today with Zoom, since the pandemic, um, pitching is mostly on Zoom. It's con consolidated usually to like 30 minutes to 45 minutes. If you're lucky, you get a full hour. Um, and so as a result, there's less time for the chit chat there's less time when you're pitching um to kind of establish a relationship or like an emotional connection you have like maybe two minutes mm -hmm. if you don't you know spend it all talking about the weather in LA or something <laughs> like that so I think it's like really important there's like this pre-pitching season I think founders should all go through which is like before you're even ready to start pitching just get comfortable putting mm -hmm. yourself out there and having meeting people, having conversations, get comfortable with your elevator pitch, you know, before you have to be in that room and starting to talk about, you know, walking them through a slide deck or walking them through your traction. Um, you want to almost have like a warm relationship established already where you don't have to spend a lot of time saying I'm so-and-so, this is my background, kind of validating yourself. Like the more time you can save on that end and the more you can focus a conversation on the business and about the fundraise, the better. That being said, oftentimes, you know, you can't know everyone in the industry. I don't know everyone in the industry. So sometimes you'll have to do those like first pitch or fish, first calls 
um, and you get 30 minutes to 45 minutes, um, you know, to have an effective conversation. Um, and the, the way I run it as an investor is I actually give it back to the founder and say, you run this however you feel most confident running it, whether it's walking me through a slide deck or if you want to just talk and we can just you know, mm-hmm. have a conversation, whatever you feel most confident and comfortable doing. Not all investors are like that. Some investors like to run the show. They like to keep it conversational and ask you a bunch of questions. Sometimes they'll just kind of be a little awkward and wait for you <laughs> to you know put up a slide deck. Be prepared, I would say, for you know, all sorts of types of pitches um, and be prepared for, you know, however the conversation will go. Sometimes people will just not get it. And you, I, I hear founders tell me this all the time. They're like, we spent 45 minutes and this investor still does not get what we're doing. Um, and that's extremely frustrating, <laughs> but it's kind of a numbers game. You just have to do it often enough. And eventually you'll get to a point where you get comfortable with, you know, pitching and how to run the show and how to answer questions um, and, you, you know, in general, how the arc of a conversation goes. Um, I've been doing it for so long. I have a good sense of how I would run it. But I also am sometimes caught off guard when founders themselves kind of take the lead and they run it differently in the same way. Like, you know, be prepared for any scenario, whether, you know, your investors have a way of running it or they're more hands off. Thank you so much. That was so insightful. Um, Adela? Yeah, I'd love to add yes. on to that. Um you know, totally agree with what Jenny's sharing. I think another sort of, you know, recent realization has been that sometimes founders are not actually aware of who they're going to go speak with. So they really don't know who their audience mm-hmm. is. And I think this applies to, you know, many layers and many roles is really do your research and understand who your audience is. And these days with technology, with social media, you can probably figure out, you know, 90% of who you're going to speak to, what they mm-hmm. follow, um, who they've been funding recently. And that's going to be so powerful if you can, you know, walk into a room and catch a speaker or an investor, um, you know, for five minutes after a presentation and really just connect with them. And they understand that you've done your homework. You're probably going to be more memorable, right? You're going to stand out. Um, You can also reach out to them online and then again, connect with them based on something that, you know, you're creating that aligns with their values, their mission, their passion. And, you know, just, just keep that in mind because to Jenny's point, um, you could be, you know, going through you know, a thousand emails um, and it's going to be really hard to sort of like pick who you want to connect with and also decide where you spend your time on a weekly basis. So that's sort of my, my recent realization is I don't think enough homework is like the pre-work is there. Um, so really think about that before you go forward. Two more things to add. Sorry, I just thought <laughs> you were talking about pre-work. Um, my pet peeve actually is when I get pitched uh, live when I'm at an event like mm-hmm. this, a networking event. And the reason is, it's not that I don't appreciate the hustle. I really do. Um, but for me, it's hard to have a connection. Like for me to spend, I, I just want to get to know you. Like when I come to events like this, I just want to meet people. And I want to hear about their backgrounds. I don't want to feel like I have to turn my brain on and remember everything you're telling me. Because when I'm in a pitch, I'm in a pitch mode. I'm taking a lot of notes in front of my computer. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of in that mode of thinking about this company. And when I'm at events like this, I'm just, I'm here to meet you guys. I want to be a resource. Um, and this is ca- kind of more of a, the second part of, you know, investor founder relationships is there is a human connect. There has to be a human connection. You know, my founders have my cell phone number. I hop on calls with them at seven o'clock, you know, I know their children's names, you know? So it's like, there has to be also a human connection. Um, and so the first thing for me is like my pet peeve is like, um, kind of be aware of your surrounding and situation. Mm-hmm. Like 
um, certain times, and if it's super loud, don't try to pitch. They're not going to hear you. They're going to forget you. And you're just like probably going to feel frustrated. Um, if you know, figure out the right place to pitch, the right environment for you to pitch, and how you feel most confident pitching. Um, and then my second pet, not pet peeve, the second thing that you know for people who are pitching, just to realize is a warm intro to an investor is always better than just a cold outreach because mm. we get thousands of emails every single day, um, and it's hard to figure out what like. I have friends who just like all of them goes to spam. Like they don't even look at it. So it's, if you really want to get in front of someone, have, figure out a way to get a warm intro. Okay. I think one more thing on that too. Um, this, this actually happened for a recent investment at my fund. We spoke to this founder maybe a year and a half ago. Um, since then he was sending like updates, not necessarily asking any for any of our time, just sending updates and, he had a very thorough understanding of our value proposition, our um, change of strategy for fund three. We closed our fund three in November and we changed a little bit how we wanted to invest. He took note and then he would send introductions for port codes that he thought would be helpful. Mm. And I think that's a really great way to stay top of mind for a VC because and it kind of goes if you're recruiting for VC too, you don't just want to ask to like, hey, do you have a status update? Do you have a do you have any more information for me? Like we're doing hundreds of things, but if you can figure out a way to add value and to help us, that immediately puts you at the top of the list and we're always going to be thinking of you. And we ultimately ended up investing in this founder's company because he was always top of mind. And then when he had something that was real and tangible, that was like, hey, I think I've made some edits and this is now like a bold company. We were ready and willing to listen and it was and it worked out. So I think that's a great way to do it too. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, it's hard to believe we're at the end of our podcast session. Um, and we like to end each podcast with um, at DTR Insight with just asking our panelists, what's one piece of advice you would tell your younger self? Um, I know it's like so broad, but, you know, I think it's just so insightful to just learn and understand anything that you think is a lesson learned or just any piece of advice. So maybe I'll start with you, Adela. Yeah, okay, um, great. great question. And I think, you know, I think actually do think about this often it's like what would you tell you know your eight-year-old self and your 80-year-old self and the eight-year-old self I think it's you know push back and you know go against the grain mm. it's actually okay and um that certainly led me on a really cool journey and brought me to where I am now and you know sort of helped me find my icky guy um but yeah I think it's something that we could still keep pushing into is like just question everything and it's okay to push back and you know dig deeper thank you Mia um, mine would, and I've been, I was thinking about this a lot recently and mm -hmm. mine is definitely show yourself some grace. Mm -hmm. If you're in this room, you're very motivated, you're working very hard, I imagine. Um, and you're probably very tough on yourself and there are times for that, but, um, I've learned this a lot the past couple of years. It's just really important to step back and appreciate all that you do very well because every single person has a strength and has something that no one else can do. And the more you can lean into that and kind of build that self-confidence. I think that just exudes and makes you better in every other aspect. And it took me a long time to learn this. I was very, very hard on myself, probably like pretty much my whole entire life. And I kind of had this aha moment and it's kind of been life-changing, honestly. So cliche, but you know, show yourself some grace. Um, mine would probably be uh, patience, go slow to go fast. I think as a kid, I was always and even as adult, I felt like this. I'm very impatient. I want to see change now. I want things now. I want it on my own terms. 
Um, and I remember as a kid, like a feedback that my teacher would give was like, I always like rush through homework so I can move on to the next day. <laughs> but you know, there's something to be said and, and that's something I'm still learning these days. Like uh, going slow, there's, there's so much, having patience and going slow sometimes actually reaps more benefit. That's not just like, at work, um, but also with your health and working out, you know, you don't always have to go hard, have it, you know, hit workout every single day. You just go on a walk and it's pretty good. Um, but having kind of that balance and knowing and patience, there are change happening that you may not feel or see, but when you look back, you're like, wow, some of my biggest growth opportunities happened, um, when I was being patient and slow. But thank you so much. Um, Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, We're going to stop the recording at this time, but we definitely want to open it up for questions um, from the audience, maybe one or two. Um, And before we go there, we also wanted to thank Just Works and Soho Works for sponsoring our event. So thank you very much. And that brings us to the conclusion of today's episode of DTR Insights. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with these inspiring women who are shaping the future of venture capital, and we hope that you guys gained some valuable insights. Special thank you again to our sponsor, Just Works, and our venue sponsor, Soho Works. And thank you all for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to DTR Insights for more episodes like this, and we will see you guys next time.